Welcome back to another Tap Talks HR podcast. Today we are talking to Dr. Adrian Ward, a leadership consultant and associate lecturer at Birkbeck University of London, who has just completed his PhD, which researched how those in leadership roles come to terms with their involvement in organisational politics. Hi Adrian, thanks for joining us. Hello Anthony, it's a pleasure. That's, that's good. And yeah, I mean, this is a great topic um, that I think uh, Tap Talks HR should be broadcasting to its people really because I think HR leaders sometimes get a little bit criticised about maybe not delving in the world of organisational politics or, or excelling in that area compared to maybe other functions of the board. So um, thanks for coming along and having a chat about this and about your research but I suppose where we should start really is so what do we mean by organisational politics? Uh, yes well uh, thank you for the invitation Anthony uh, and I think part of the reason uh, that uh, people may not delve in politics in the way that you suggested at the outset is because that it typically for many people it's defined very negatively. Uh, if you look into the literature of research and writing on this topic, overwhelmingly if from a traditional perspective politics has been positioned as something that's very negative. So if you, if you were to have this conversation with people in the streets and say what does politics mean to you, typically you'll hear people say that it's about empire building, it's about backstabbing, it's something that's very divisive, it's something that's very selfish, uh, something that's very dysfunctional. So traditionally politics has been defined as being something that's a very negative aspect of organisational life and indeed some commentators have called for it to be eradicated that you know that this is something that we should not have in our organizational uh, existence and now there's another more emergent school of thought that says um, actually organizational politics is something that is a naturally occurring phenomenon in any organization in any group in any family uh, it's something that naturally occurs when people work together towards a common goal uh, so it's a it's it's a hopeless task trying to think that you can eradicate this because it's something that is there in any social group or in any organization and actually it's something that not only is it naturally occurring but it's actually an essential part of making organizational function so if you want change to happen uh, if you want your strategy to be executed effectively then the political dynamics that go with that are an essential and in some cases desirable element so you can see that straight away uh, and I think this may be a feature of this discussion straight away there's a sort of divergence of this, this sort of polarization between different schools of thought different definitions so traditionally very uh, seem very dysfunctional very negative more contemporary definitions are starting to come around to the idea that actually this is something that is you know is just naturally occurring and it's about harnessing it for positive reasons rather than trying to eradicate it altogether yeah and i think you probably see that because uh, we kind of skirt around it don't we in the hr community it's called stakeholder management yes. or networking or yes. some but actually what we're doing there we are we are using politics with a small p to try and get our agenda and even by me saying agenda I'm starting to think oh that sounds a bit divisive yes. and so I'm already falling into the trap that you're just describing that well I, you know, it might be a perfectly important and legitimate agenda mm. you know I think one of the aspects about that is that individual interest and organizational interest aren't necessarily mutually exclusive mm. you know one can be pursuing an agenda that is very necessary and important for the organization's future 
Uh, it doesn't have to be pursuing an agenda that is something that's personal and selfish, and that's another sort of aspect of that, that it's seen politics is sort of aligned with um, ambitious, egotistical self-fulfillment rather than aligned with organisational change, strategy execution, and so on and so forth. And, and you make an interesting point about language. I mean, I think the language is an important aspect you know, of this, because some organisations do touch on this arena by using the terms that you've talked about. We, they'll run influencing skills courses, or we talk about stakeholder management. Um, and these are definitely uh, elements that are political in nature, but it's just the, it's the taboo nature of the term. I think that um, um, I would go as far as to say that the, the term is sort of stigmatised in organisational life. And such a, uh, such are the sort of negative connotations that go go with it. I mean, the, the research consistently, the research that's undertaken that taps into how politics is perceived by people in the workplace. You know, there's been lots of meta analyses of 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 this, which is a meta analysis is a sort of study of all the other studies. Mm-hmm. So they have huge sample sizes. Um, and the, the, the results of these meta-analyses consistently point to the fact that people working in organisations see this thing as very, very damaging and very, very negative. And there's been all sorts of studies that link these negative perceptions to a range of outcomes that organisations would say are very damaging. Um, turnover, stress, um, lack of teamwork. You know, so these negative perceptions can be linked um, to a range of negative outcomes. So, therefore, it's very easy to understand why there is this taboo around this because everything, all of the research points to the fact that those in organisational life see this as, um, as, very, as very damaging. Uh, so, organisations, therefore, uh, and leadership teams are not very keen on acknowledging that there is this aspect to how their organisation functions. Uh, you know, we like to think that um, we are all working in a meritocracy uh, where the best idea, where, where, you know, the strategy will be based on the, the merit of competing ideas and the best idea will win out. And so the notion that um, strategy and career success is not just a, about merit of argument and the best option or the best person for the job, the notion that there may be some other dynamics and forces at play can be rather unsettling because it suggests that perhaps we're not such a meritocracy as we wanted to believe. And therefore it's a temptation to say it doesn't exist, we don't have that here. And I suppose that's where it comes back into the people agenda, doesn't it, into the HR agenda, because because actually if, we, if we're going to brush it under the carpet or we're going to only look at the meritocracy part of it when we're looking at our talent pipelines etc, we're going to make decisions that aren't as good as what they could be really yes uh, well indeed I guess what I'm what I'm saying is that uh, there is a political element to all of these processes in that go on at leadership level that HRDs are involved in and you've touched on some of them there about sort of talent development and and so on and so forth and it's um, and being aware of those that political dimension to these debates and processes, being aware of it and being able to influence it, mm. I think is an important area for HRDs and for uh, other executives as well, because it is there, it's a, it's, it's a natural part of the debate. You know, the idea that 
these discussions are going on almost with a sort of courtroom sense of ob- objectivity that, and, and evidence, I think is, well, I'd say it's a little naive. Mm. Uh, it, the best idea will not necessarily win out. Now, that all sounds, you know, I'm conscious as I say that. Again, that all sounds rather, you know, sort of dark and divisive. But you could, you could flip it another way and say, well, if, if you're trying to put, if we're trying to get change uh, to have some traction in an organisation, and it may be change that isn't um, about fulfilling a personal agenda, it may be change that is really incredibly important and necessary for the organisation's future. But it just that it's at the stage of being a germ of an idea. It, mm. it needs to get somehow to get attention, to get traction, to get sponsorship, to get support. Um, well, I think political skill and pol- the political dynamics of how you get change from just being a good idea into the bloodstream of an organisation is absolutely essential. And there is that's political um, acumen and skill being used in an incredibly positive way because it's being used to get an important legitimate idea into the organisation's um, um, you know, attention or into the bloodstream where otherwise it wouldn't it, it just wouldn't stand a chance so hence this idea that um, organ, political skill is, is an incredibly important aspect of a range of positive things like change management um, rather than just about being aligned with personal, selfish, backstabbing career fulfillment. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's, it's the how to word an issue, how to communicate and narrate to the wider audience, but then it's also about the most senior decision maker in the organisation, how to position it to them. So there's there's almost multiple facets here, isn't there, about this idea of organisation politics? Yes, and I think and, uh, and that surfaces really uh, one aspect that came out in my research about the, the challenge that embracing this aspect of your leadership role presents uh, to us personally, because. If you follow the, the, the line of my um, argument, it means that rather than pretending this thing doesn't exist, um, we've actually got to embrace the need for us to be politically aware and skillful um, in an environment where we know that people around us are perceiving politics as being very negative. Mm. So that's a challenge to um, one sense of you know, identity and uh, ethics to actively be um, a participant in something that we know is viewed so negatively. Um, And that does mean that often politically skillful does mean um, having some nuances in how you describe what you're trying to achieve or change or performance. You're describing it differently to different people. Now that can be seen as being two-faced. Mm. Um, a lot of the people in my research talked about how they see themselves as very straight, very open, very honest. And one of the things that was difficult for them, as we talked about situations that they were involved in that had a political element, was that they realised that their their behaviour and activity in such situations was not um, coherent or consistent with their own described view of self. You know, people acknowledge that, well, yes, I've described change differently to different people depending on 
who they were and what I wanted out of that conversation. And, and, and that's the really interesting bit for me because it comes to your research and, and your research fascinated me and, and just for the listeners we met because you were lecturing in, 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 a, in a master's degree that I was undertaking and, and that's led to this conversation and it's um, that, that going back to your work around how leaders make sense of this. Yes. Can you give us an idea about what your research found in this area and what you heard? Uh, yes, well, I think the the headline of that is that um, the vast majority of leaders that took part in my research had great difficulty squaring their involvement in this arena. You know, this and it just underlines this sense of challenge that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. That um, how we often view ourselves as leaders as being typically, you know, open, transparent, um, straight, um, comes under pressure when one realizes when one replays situations that one's been involved in that necessarily that maybe I haven't altogether been straight but then perhaps that was for very good reasons so my research was a real exploration of that struggle mm. of how do you come to terms with your involvement um, and it was the case that uh, the vast majority did struggle with that I think that um, a few were very clear a few were very clear about the nature of their involvement. And if, if I may quickly describe mm-hmm. the four narratives that people drew upon in order to make sense of their involvement. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a small group uh, came under the banner of what I call no such thing. So for them, there was no such thing as organised politics. It didn't exist. It was just something people blamed uh, or used to blame their own shortcomings on. Or So just doesn't doesn't happen not important um, a second narrative was what I called weary endurance where people um, acknowledged that there was this thing called politics but that um, it it was something you couldn't escape from you had no option but to collude with it so you can see it's viewed mm. quite negatively so this sense of look I hate the thing but you just there's just no escaping it um, that was that particular narrative. The third narrative I called conscientious objection, <laughs> uh, which was leaders who said um, it goes on, but I have nothing to do with it. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I just I don't I don't participate. Um, <clears throat> and the fourth involvement, uh, fourth narrative, which I called pragmatic engagement. Okay. Now this narrative, actually, if you think about the first three. The first three narratives position politics as quite negative. You know, it doesn't exist. It's horrible, but you've got no choice. Or uh, it's horrible and I have nothing to do with it. But this fourth narrative, pragmatic engagement, positioned it much more. Look, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, if you want to get anything done in organisations, you've got to be active. Uh, all tricks are not necessarily dirty tricks. You can do politics in a positive um, wholesome way it doesn't have to be something that's dark and divisive uh, so first of all the fact that the uh, three of the narratives were much more negative I think speaks to this taboo stigmatization mm-hmm. that we talked about previously but the other interesting thing was is that almost universally participants in the research occupied more than one of those narratives Okay. Uh, you know, throughout the interview. So rather that very, very few could be unequivocal in maintaining a single stance. Uh, people veered from, um, well, yes, of course, you have to, you've got no choice, through to I have nothing to do with it, through to, uh, well, yes, of course, of course I do. It's perfect. So I think this whole 
the fact that people were occupying contradictory positions, I think just emphasised to me how much of a struggle mm. it is for, for us to be comfortable with the extent of our own uh, political involvement. And do you think that moving around was maybe even si- based on your own values compared to the situation you were in, where you felt more comfortable in a different place? Um, what, from the point of view of participants? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think um, uh, I think what it, what it sometimes revealed was the difference between talking about something when you're not involved in it mm-hmm. and then having to account for your own experience and your own behaviour. And I think that's where it got actually quite tricky for people because it's one thing to say, look, um, you know, this thing is a very divisive thing you know it's a horrible part of organizational life I don't like it people pursuing their own agenda but then when the nature of the interview got round to talking about situations that they faced and been involved in people often came sort of had to come to terms with the fact that there was a contradiction between accounts of their own involvement and how right. they, and how they had just defined the phenomenon okay so, so actually, they were suddenly realizing that the way they viewed life wasn't necessarily how they well, acted one hundred percent of the time. Absolutely, mm. and hence it was often the comment was often made at the end of discussions. Um, I think I realised I'm a little bit more political than I thought I was. Mm. You know. Wow! So, so you, there was a little bit of self awareness going on well, in your interview and, at the time. Uh, well, uh, and self awareness is a really interesting and important phrase for me because I think um, for those HRDs listening or anyone else listening, I think a huge part of um, being skillful in the political domain means being a, aware of one's own involvement and and being coming and and com, coming to terms with the fact that this is an essential part of my role it doesn't have to be something that's dark and divisive but the no such thing denial mm. is not in anybody's interest i don't think you know because it it is it 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 is there and to deny this aspect i don't think that's the answer weary collusion suggests that we're a bit of a victim Mm, yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, and I don't think being a victim is the answer either. Mm-hmm. Conscientious objection, I think, suggests that we're on some lofty moral high ground, but we're going to be completely ineffective there because where things are getting done mm. is in the political terrain. And if we're going to sit on some lofty moral high ground, we're going to become uninfluential and irrelevant. So the moral high ground isn't the answer either. And hence, pragmatic engagement offers, I think, a much more productive place to be. So I think this whole self-awareness piece that you've just touched on there, I think, is a very important aspect. And, and I mean, if you um, pragmatically engage in it, then I could imagine your mental well-being around this subject would naturally be a bit more positive. Because you're, you're doing those positive things to engage into a situation that you know exists and you're not trying to deny yourself. But I, I, really, I suppose from my point of view, we, talked, we mentioned it a couple of times, politically skillful. Mm. So I really want to know, so if I want to be politically skillful, yeah. what does it entail? What does it mean to be? If you could like have a shopping list, which I know 
it is a very hard thing to do when we're talking about human yes. behaviour. But what yes. kind of things would you see as politically skillful? Or well, actions? yes, I think the, uh, the, the first thing I think I would say about that is developing the ability to read your organisation's political terrain and landscape. Uh, and that's quite tricky in a way because it, how does one develop that sense of being able to read situations? It does require, I think, the ability to look beneath the waterline uh, of the iceberg for the iceberg. Mm. You know, if we if we if we think the iceberg is just the bit that's sticking above the waterline then we're only seeing 20% of the picture, I think. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that the idea with icebergs, yeah. that there's most of it's underneath? I'm sure that's what the captain of the Titanic <laughs> said. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I think when we're talking about reading, it means being able to read beneath the waterline, to really develop this capability to read between the lines of what's going on and to understand those dynamics. Mm. So the first thing is, is about being very observant and being working on one's ability to really interpret some dynamics that may be submerged or may only offer little scraps of information. So, you know, this notion of being a bit more like the detective and being able to piece together and interpret things that are not above the waterline. I think mm -hmm. that. So political skill, I think, is partly about being able to develop that sort of intuitive sense of reading these dynamics that aren't obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think the second element of political skill is, this, is, is developing this whole set of interpersonal skills that go with the things that we've talked about previously, about relationship building, stakeholder management, influencing... So I think it does regard, regard high-level relationship skills, um, communication skills, the ability to listen, to understand, the ability, the ability to forge high-trust relationships, uh, coalitions, uh, to um, get past resistance. Uh, so th 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 this is more than just reading. This is about a skill set. Mm. And I think a lot of commentators have linked some of that to the idea of emotional intelligence. That, that was the two words that were floating in my yeah. head as you were saying that, wasn't and it? And I, I think I would see emotional intelligence and political skill as very heavily overlapping mm. circles. Mm. Um, because what is, if you look at Goldman's EQ, it talks about self-awareness, you know, it talks about interpersonal skill. Mm. Empathising. Empathy. Your, yeah. You know, uh, and absolutely. You know, if you're if you're going to be effective politically, uh, you know, they are capabilities that you absolutely need. And, and that's and that's fantastic. It's, I think that really helps bring apart some of the elements of what we've been talking about. Because it seems like such a complicated subject about where do I start? And I, and as always, we're running out of time on our podcast. We always do this. I should do our podcast. Um, but if there was one. Thing that you wanted to get across to the HR leaders or anybody listening to this podcast now that would probably get them going in the world of political skill kind of thing what what would you say is a little tidbit from your point of view well I think one of my favorite commentators is um, um, 
David Buchanan, who's Emeritus Professor at Cranfield, and he's done an awful lot of work in this arena. So for anyone listening, uh, he would be a very good uh, commentator and writer for you to follow up on. Uh, And he has this, uh, he did a book about the the turf war, as he called it, or the turf game. Um, And I think he had a very pithy soundbite, which was along the lines, I'm not sure I've got it absolutely, but it was along the lines of, uh, to play the turf game effectively, in other words, to be effective politically. Mm. It's something about get rid of the innocence, uh, banish the guilt, Mm. uh, get on the pitch and play to win. Fantastic. Um, and I think, well, as a one-line soundbite, I think that's... I'm not sure I can do any better than that. I think the, the bit about banishing the innocence and the guilt, mm. you know, is important because that does go with this whole angle of weary, endurance, no such thing, conscientious objection. Those narratives aren't the answer. You know, this is, whether we like it or not, in a leadership role, we are in a political environment. Uh, and it's increasingly important for us to be skillful if we're going to have any influence and get what we want done. And and that's just amazing. And as you've seen, Adrian, I've been taking notes while we've been doing this. So I found this fascinating, this conversation. Thanks ever so much for coming along at your busy time and sharing some of this research that you do. I feel there's so much great research going on in the world of psychology, etc., that doesn't make it out there to to people who can then use it effectively with organisations, etc. So thanks, Adrian. Thanks for coming along. Huge pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. And thanks, everyone else, for listening. Um, if this or any of the other topics interest you from our Tap Talks HR podcast series, then you can find out more at tapsolutions.com or just search for us on Google. That's it for this time. I hope we will be joining, you will be joining us again soon. Thanks. Bye.